1905, more than 100 years ago, the Daily News, which was a newspaper in London, published a piece, and it was titled, What's Wrong with the World? And they asked for answers. They wanted to know from the people of London 100 years ago, what do you think is wrong with the world? Hundreds of people wrote in. Thousands of people wrote in with their different answers. And G.K. Chesterton, who's this famous writer and theologian, he simply responded with two words. What's wrong with the world? He said, I am. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. If you were here with us last night for a Monday Thursday service, you heard me address how captive we are to the past. <coughs> that we are so captive to and by the past, it's evidenced in our grammar, in our actions, and even in our conversations. We're always thinking about what has happened, and we spend almost no time thinking about what could happen. I tried to make the case last night for confusing our sense of time because Jesus is not bound in the past. Jesus continues to live and reign with God and the Holy Spirit even today. Moreover, I ended by saying that whenever we gather at the table, whenever we have communion, we have the Lord's Supper, it's around a table in which we remember, but we also anticipate what lies ahead. And so tonight, I want us to return to the theme of time, and in particular, how haunted we are by it. Because we are, of course, haunted by our own histories, the wrong choices we've made, the right ones we avoided. But we are also haunted by the history of our humanity, which frankly hasn't been very humane. The last hundred years in human history have perhaps been the most bloody in all of history. Every time we engaged in a new struggle, a new war, a new battle, there was an assumption that this conflict will be so bad that it will end all conflicts in the future. But every time it happened, a new one arose in its place. But we're really good at denial. We're really good at, as Pilate does, washing our hands of it. And we look at something like the Holocaust, which everyone can hold up as this example of true and utter evil. We can hold up the Holocaust and we can feel as if we might be able to wash our hands of it. Because we're not responsible for what happened to the Jews. That's the Germans' fault, right? But the we that we use in that sentence is very problematic because if the we is Christians or even if the we is Americans, because as Americans, you might not know this, but our country was given plenty of opportunities before the Holocaust started to receive scores of Jewish people from Germany. And you know how we responded every time? No, thank you. More than 30 nations in the world were offered the chance to take the Jews from Germany, and only one said yes. So if we want to say as Americans that we're not responsible, there is part of it that is our responsibility. But even if we don't want to say as Americans, maybe what we want to say is as Christians, we're not responsible for what happened to the Jews in the Holocaust. It was the Jewish, I mean the German Christians in Germany who let the Holocaust happen. It was the anti-Semitism that came straight from the Christian church in Germany that led to the extermination of six million people. Tonight is Good Friday should really be called Bad Friday. It is not an easy night for Christians. It shouldn't be. We are forced to look at the cross. We are forced to look at ourselves. And we are forced to reckon with our responsibility. And when we do this thing called Good Friday or Bad Friday, we cannot deny that we are inheritors of a history that makes us a people who should acknowledge that we are anything but innocent. 
there's a church that's smack dab right in the middle of downtown Detroit, Michigan. Uh, it was built before all the white people left the city. And uh, they have this enormous pipe organ that required a frighteningly large amount of money to buy and install. They have Tiffany stained glass windows on every side of the sanctuary. And uh, the pulpit, it towered over everyone in the space. But over the years, that church has changed a lot. They haven't been able to afford an organist in over a decade, so no one knows if the organ even works. The stained glass windows are now punctuated with bullet holes, and they are covered with iron bars. The church lost so much money, they had to sell their pulpit. They had to sell it to a church that was growing in the suburbs, so now the pastor doesn't have a pulpit to stand in. The pastor has to walk around between the pews on Sunday morning. It's changed a lot. I sat in that church years ago. I sat in the pews, and I listened to a sermon on Sunday morning, and I looked up because hanging above where the altar used to be, where the pulpit used to be, was a giant cross. I stared at the cross. I should have been listening to the sermon. I should have been a good Christian, but I wasn't. I was distracted by this cross. Everything else about the sanctuary was dilapidated. It was broken. It was in need of repair, but that cross was immaculate. It was as if it were perfect. But the longer I stared at the cross, the more I noticed something strange. Everything about it was perfect except for the bottom right-hand corner of the cross. Because there in the bottom right-hand corner of the cross, it was all gnarled. It looked like a dog had been chewing on it for years. Very strange. Hung up in the air, 20 feet above everything else. And there in the little corner were all these marks and divots as if something had been chewing on it. So after the service ended, I went up to one of the ushers. I said, hey... Thank you for having me at the church today, but what's up with your cross? And it, it looks like maybe it fell or, or something happened to it, and I, I just I got really distracted. And he very proudly beamed at me, and he said, oh, no, 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 no. Since the first year this church was built, we take that cross down every Good Friday. Uh, we take turns dragging it through the streets of Detroit. Uh, no matter what's happened to the church, all the problems we've had, every Good Friday we meet here at the church, we take it down from where it's hanging by the ceiling, and we put it over our shoulders. And the reason it's all messed up is because we've been dragging it over asphalt for 50 years. I said, well, why do you do it? Why do you, why do you carry the cross through town? And he said, so that we don't forget what we did. So that we don't forget what we did. Everything in my life up to that moment had prepared me for a very different answer. I thought he was going to say, so that we don't forget what Jesus did. <laughs> but that's not what he said. He said, we carry the cross every year so that we don't forget what we did. What we did. You know, at the heart of our faith is the strange and bizarre proclamation that Jesus was degraded and dehumanized by his fellow human beings as much as was possible. That he was murdered by decree from the religious establishment and from the state, that even when the crowds were given the opportunity to save him, they shouted, crucify, with reckless abandon. In just about every religious system in the world, there is a big distinction between those who are holy and those who are unholy, those who are right and those who are wrong, those who are godly and those who are ungodly. But in Christianity, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None is righteous, no, not one, to quote St. Paul. The crucifixion of Jesus, what we have come here tonight to remember, is not a very religious event, which is to say it's not very spiritual. 
It is particularly and specifically rooted in what we might call the real. It happens in the midst of political jockeying for power. It is shocking. It is extremely violent. It threatens the established religious authorities. It forces us to look upon the darkness of death. During the time of Jesus, Jews didn't crucify people. That was a Roman punishment. And yet, in John's gospel, what I read for us, he portrays the strange back and forth between those in power. Everyone wants him to be rid. They don't want him anymore, but nobody wants a responsibility. Oh, let's bring him to Herod. Oh, give him back to the Jewish leaders. Oh, let's give him to Pilate. Oh, let's give him back to the Jewish leaders. Nobody wants responsibility for what's going to happen. And as nearly all things go in the church, we could debate the responsibility of the death of Jesus. We could cherry-pick particular verses and try to pin it on someone or some people. But the truth about the responsibility of Jesus' death is one we were just singing. T'was I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. I crucified thee. It was me. It was us. It was us. That's the hardest thing we say, I think. It's the hardest line in any hymn we ever sing. Now, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That's a great line. We throw that around in the church all the time. But Christ died for us while we were yet sinners because we are the sinners upon and through whom he died. We are the ungodly. We are the ones for whom Jesus dies. Sure, had we been there that day, had we been in the crowds, we might not have shouted crucify. We might not have been the ones to hammer the nails into his flesh. We might not have mocked him with his crown of thorns and his purple robe. But friends, we all say crucify in our own way. We make assumptions about people for no other reason than the color of their skin. We judge people for the name of a politician on their bumper sticker. We perpetuate systems of injustice in which more and more people suffer year after year after year. We all say crucify in our own way. You know, we're, we're in a United Methodist Church. We have a slogan, open hearts, open minds, open doors. That's a very inclusive ideal. That's a very big buzzword in the church these days. We want to be inclusive. Though I don't think we really know what that means. Because if if we were really inclusive, it is uh, asking us to do something upon which we cannot. It means a total and an unwavering commitment to something that is impossible. Because even if we are able to ditch all those old divisions between us, a new one usually arises in its place. Oh, we've got racism figured out? Okay, now it's going to be economics that divide us. Oh, we've got economics figured out? Okay, now it's going to be country of origin. New divisions always arise when we fix something. You know, and this is no more ironic than outside churches that I've seen recently that have these big signs that say, hate has no place here. I think that's one of the funniest things I've ever read in my life. Hate has no place here. You know why it's funny? Because it's a lie. Because it's a lie. All of us have hate in us whether we like to admit it or not. And to make matters worse, saying that a church has no room for hate says that the people in the church hate the people who hate. Which leads us back to the cross. Because the cross puts to an end 
all of these religious categories that separate people from each other. It unites us under a common banner. It is the most inclusive thing in the world. And we might like that banner to be about love or hope or joy or peace or grace. But that's not the banner that unites us. You know what it is? Our sin. Our guilt. The only thing that really unites us is our shame. We are the ungodly. And yet Christ dies for us. This is the great generosity of God. Knowing our hearts and minds and souls, knowing our own hatred dies for us anyway. That is scandalous. It is a scandalous generosity because it is fundamentally counter to anything we might do. You know, be honest, the crucifixion is a very ungodly thing for Jesus to do, and that's kind of the whole point. It was about noon when Pilate said to the Jews, Here is your king. And they cried out, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. And then Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So they took him. And carrying the cross by himself, he went out to a place that is called the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. It is there that they crucified him. And with two others on either side, Jesus in the middle. Pilate had an inscription written and put it on the cross. It said, Here is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And after this, when Jesus knew that all was finished, he said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing by the cross. So they put it on a sponge, and they filled it with wine, and they put it on the branch of a hyssop tree, and they held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. And he died. What's wrong with the world? I am. We are. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.